there sitting at his desk, and she said, Mr. Sproul, do you believe that Christ is the only way to God? Now, can you imagine? Have you ever had that one before? You ever had that question? Anyway, he just groaned. And, you know, he's really excited about being a Christian. He really is uh, on fire in the sense that, you know, he's telling people about Christ. But of all questions in this class, because he already knew uh, what she was like and the way that she took Christians. And so he knows if he answers yes, he's going to be in trouble. And if he answers no, he's going to be even worse in trouble <laughs> because he would be considered to be in, uh, uh, one who is in treason. right? <laughs> but he committed treason if he would do that. right? But anyway, he has no alternative. And he says it really softly, really quietly, mumbles where she can't hear it. And she goes, what is that, Mr. Sproul, that you said? And he goes, yes. <laughs> anyway, she just blew off in anger, yelling at him, and, and she's saying, you bigoted, arrogant, narrow-minded person, how arrogant can you be to say that your religion is the only way? And of course, uh, there's a, a smattering of laughter throughout the classroom as kids are making fun of him. Uh, anyway, uh, at, at the end of the class, as everybody had left and he was walking out in the hall, she stopped him and said, uh, I do want to make an apology to you. I'm sorry what I did because I do know what you do believe. I already knew the question. So I put you in a point that was embarrassing. But I still can't understand how Christ can be the only way. Sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? Sounds pretty narrow, doesn't it, to the world? And R.C. said, Ma'am, I believed. If, if I believed in the sense that it was because it was my way and because... I didn't know anything else and didn't know about anything else or if I just believed that this is just the way it is and there's, that's what I'm choosing and I'm taking it and it's my way or hit the highway. <laughs> if, if that would be the case, then I would be considered to be arrogant and then I would be considered to be conceited. But he says, let me ask you a question. Do you believe Jesus is one of the ways? And she said, Well, I know many people who uh, accept Jesus, but also other religions too, and other great leaders. So I can say, as she said, Yeah, there can be one way. But only one way? R.C. asked back. She says, Of course not. But... Then he had to retort back of saying, would you want me to be anything different and say something different? Because Jesus actually taught that He is the only way. So how can I go against what He taught and He is the one I believe in? And of course, He uh, used the John 14.6, I am the way, right? The truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So, if he's saying that, then if you're talking about arrogant and bigoted and conceited and narrow-minded, then you can blame it on Jesus because he's the one that said that. 
And if we remember that, you know, three times from the very heavens, God spoke to earth here, and He was more. He was speaking about His beloved Son. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So Christ is the very focal point, the very essence of what Christianity is about. Um, everything else is is idolatry. Any kind of worship. Any kind. There can't be anything that's even close to it. It has to be what this book talks about. Uh, and we know it's, it's one thing to say we're supposed to tolerate all the other religions. But it would be another thing to say they're all really equal with each other and they're saying the same thing because that would be a lie. Because they're not saying the same thing, are they? They are... They're totally different. Christianity is especially different and very unique from any other religion. So we can't just say that they're all the the same way. So anyway, um, we know God is not going to tolerate all the other religions, is He? Uh, But here in America, I mean, we can tolerate other religions coming in, but to have another belief is another thing. Um, So anyway, R.C. continued on with the English professor and he says, do you see why I believe Jesus is the only way? Yes, but, she comes back, how can you believe in a God who only allows one way then? Even if there is one way, what kind of God is He that would only want one way? As she asks. As she says, that's narrow-minded. And then R.C., replied back, well, why has He provided even one way? (laughs) Why did He even provide the way? And so He said, can I put this into a hypothetical situation? And then He goes on to say, it's not hypothetical. But to her, He appealed to her and says, I know you don't believe in the Bible, but hypothetically, let's just suppose there is a God. Let's just suppose there's a God and He's absolutely holy, and He created the world and uh, animals, plants, and best of all, He created human beings who were made in the very image of Him. And let's just suppose that, that God then speaks to them and gives them one restriction. can't eat from that tree of life. Only one restriction. Well, suppose the creature then willfully disobeys what God had told them and goes against him, goes against that law of God and defies it arrogantly. Let's just suppose that happened. But at the same time, God then, after that happens, let's suppose that He provides a way for them to be forgiven as there will be a deliverer. And of course, as time goes on, God has a line of people. Let's just suppose those people get revelation from God and uh, they disobey Him and He keeps providing the way and He keeps forgiving people. He, He gives warnings and then He sends prophets and they talk about judgment, but God is a God who forgives God is the one who that uh, also delivers. And so, you know, He keeps giving forgiveness. 
atonement is going to be made. Let's just suppose that. And they kill the prophets that tell them about that, of good news. And then He sends His only Son. And let's suppose that He sends His only Son and He actually takes sin upon the people and puts them on His Son. And He actually dies for them. And He says, after they kill Him, after the people kill Him, then He says, I still will forgive you if you trust in My Son. You will get forgiveness. You repent. And if you uh, trust in Him. And you'll have eternal bliss. Honor the One who died for the sins. Now, suppose that's true. And here's where He asks the final question. Would you dare to stand before God on Judgment Day and say there are other ways to God. <laughs> if that were true, as of course he knows it to be true because it's true, but suppose, if that be the case, that's the way that I'm taking it, how can I have any other thought other than there's only one way? Buddha died and he never was a Savior for anybody. Mohammed lived, died, and never was a Savior for anybody. Nobody uh, ever resurrected. Nobody was a Savior. And here we have one who is. And so I thought it was kind of interesting the way that uh, a young R.C. approached that whenever somebody said uh, they, uh, you, you can't say that there's only one God. Um, we've been talking about um, the law. We were kind of working into that last week. And what we really always want to do is we see the standard of God and we know that we want to live a life that is holy, that is recognizing how great He is, and also live our lives that will be conforming to who He is. We still know that we, we break the law, but we have Christ there and we lean on Him. We still want to follow that. What, what we always want to do is we want to get people to the point, and I know this sounds drastically bad, but when, when we give them the truth of God's Word, we want to make them feel like they're missing something. We want to make them feel like they're outside of something. You know, uh, there's the humanness. Of, we want them to just kind of join right on along, even though they're not. You know, I mean, uh, we want to make them feel distant and that they would have a holy jealousy that we have something that they don't. And when you get the truth, then it reveals their condition. And it reveals that uh, the way they really are right at this point in time that needs to be exposed. And they should flee to Christ and uh, run, run to Him because of the condition they're in. Uh, there's nowhere to go other than to Christ for joy, right? So there should be a conviction. Uh, we want to warn against the self-deceit that they may have. Somehow, uh, many of them think that they are good enough. Somehow they're good enough. Uh, a good question to ask is, would you consider yourself a good person? And we know that many will, will say that. And of course, uh, we need to show that they're not... Uh, 
through this. There is death. There is hell. There is judgment. There is eternity. There are tragedies in the Bible of people like Lot's wife, um, Judas Iscariot, um, Esau. I mean, you can go on and on and see the tragedies of people who actually even knew of the true God but uh, didn't take uh, the warning seriously. The Bible actually is a hell and damnation book. It will bring that forth as well as grace and mercy. But it definitely uh, brings forth that. Jesus spoke more of hell than anywhere else in the Bible that you can find about hell. Jesus spoke about it very much. Um, There should be an emptiness that is exposed to them without having Christ. need to show what's missing and then also show that God is an immense has an immense amount of love. Uh, it's unfathomable. It's, uh, it's infinite. God's love is there. And uh, so, you know, we want to preach like we are dying men to dying men. They need that truth. Um, last week we were, uh, I think we were in the uh, dealing with the Ten Commandments, and of course we had started with the first one, and I think we'd gotten down to the point of even uh, thou shalt not murder, right? We talked about that what's in the heart, and uh, then uh, we know the seventh commandment is dealing with adult or uh, adultery, which takes in all kinds of sexual sin, doesn't it? Uh, any. Uh, a sexual sin is anything outside of marriage, anything. And of course, when you um, when you look at at scripture, uh, many commands that deal with that. Of course, you take a you think of First uh, Corinthians six nine. You get a lot of the commands right in the New Testament that are reiterated. This is quite quite a warning here. This is to the Corinthians, and of course there could have been some, there were some, that were professing to be Christians that were not, their lives had never changed. And then he talks to other ones that's reminding them, remember the life that you had, here's what you came out of. Uh, you can't be a Christian and live like that, that you did before. He says in verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's pretty drastic, isn't it? Straightforward. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators. And of course, that would be dealing with our, our seventh commandment there. Uh, dealing with adultery, fornication, any sexual sin, homosexuality, name it. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. He mentions all of that. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. So he brings it forth. It's just a reminder to them, hey, here's where you were delivered from. Uh, A true Christian does not continue on that kind of life. So the law is even used for Christians in in the, we can say the the third sense of the law, the third use. It's, um, It's natural for all of us to be tempted to do any kind of sin. Um, we know that like homosexuality today is is a big thing. It's huge. It seems like it's growing, and it's all you, you hear about anymore. And you know, it's it's it just continues on. You can say, well, what is that? Well, that's part of this commandment right here. 
uh, about no adultery, uh, sexual sin. Um, if if somebody says they're born that way, in one way, of course, I've ne- I've never said that they're they're born that way. Matter of fact, I would go against it. They're not born that way to be a homosexual. That goes against nature. But in another sense, going to the natural, it sounds like I'm saying something opposite here. Uh, if somebody wants to start arguing about homosexuality, we really need to get into the sin itself, just just sin, and, and go from there. But we see here, here's where the Ten Commandments reveals this, that it's wrong. And uh, they can say, well, hey, I'm just doing what's natural because I'm born that way. Well, it's natural for all of us to be tempted to do things that God says is wrong, isn't it? That they're doing what is natural in another sense because that's sinful. That's a sinful nature. Another thing, it's, it's twisted. It's backwards. Um, go to uh, Romans 13. 13 and 14. Uh, Romans 13. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Make no provision for it at all. Run run from it. Don't be around it. Don't let it uh, tempt us, right? And so he's saying here, here's the... Here's the deal. As we are in the day, we don't act like we're in the dark in the night anymore. We don't do those things. Those things are long gone. Um, Go to Matthew 5 and we'll see how Jesus put this in a spiritual um, nature. Not only is the physical acts bad, but what happens even in our minds. 5 verse 20 Seven, he says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. There's right out of the Ten Commandments. It's the seventh one. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so uh, he clarifies what it really means if, if we're even, if that's in our thought pattern and that's what we do. Uh, he shows that there again, it's that law is broken, and uh, it's only through Christ that we're able to to fulfill that law. But obviously, these are things that we are uh, to be having in our lives. Uh, Christ has put those that law in our heart. Uh, eighth commandment: no stealing. Right? Um, stolen apples taste sweeter. <laughs> Remember? <laughs> You're ever taken any any fruit from the the farmer next door or anything? Uh, yes, that's stealing. And so if uh, somebody has problems saying I'm a good person, again, if we say, oh, uh, have you ever stolen anything? Let's be honest about it. Really think about it. Well, what's that make them? Right? Well, they're thieves. By nature, they're thieves. By nature, they're adulterers. By nature, they're murderers. My, the law just rips us apart. Spits us out, lays us out on the floor, doesn't it? Um, there's no lying. Well, everybody has lied to, haven't they? It requires truth, and if, of course, if one doesn't believe in God, then uh, how do they really have truth? God is truth. Uh, look in Revelation twenty-one eight. This is pretty uh, condemning here. 
we'll see the standard of God right here in Revelation. Now we've been talking about in Exodus where the law is at. You can say, but yeah, we're in the in the day of grace. <laughs> uh, well, God always offers His grace. That's great, but look at this. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it says, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. If those are marks of them, murdering, immorality, idolatry, Demonic worship. Lying? Little white lies? Well, that's what it does. Again, it shows the nature of person, right? They do these things. And then, the last commandment is not coveting. And that's the one that stung Paul. And he realized, as God's Word finally hit him, as he knew the law, he knew it in his head, and memorized the Torah, Pharisee of Pharisees, you're kidding? Yes, he knew it. But it, he didn't really know, knew what it meant until it hit him and it killed him. Uh, it's the most subtle of sins. Coveting is very subtle. It seems really minor. Before a man steals, what does he do? He covets. Before he commits adultery, what does one do? Covets. Wanting something that's not his. Cutting, coveting actually sets off the fuse for sin. I think um, you think of uh, a room full of children and you give them ten pieces of candy and then you give one of them the you eleventh know, piece of candy. What are the other ones going to want? They're going to want that eleventh piece of candy. Despite they have ten pieces, they want that other one that that, that one has over there. <laughs> coveting. It's a natural thing. And uh, anyway, if we go through the law and and just use, you can use one or two or three, however many you need, but they can't help but see that they've broken the law and they are guilty. Everybody is guilty. Romans three says they're guilty. So it is it is really good that we can show them where they really are. And that's what makes amazing grace then. Now, grace really means something when we can get to the good news once they seen, have seen that they have broken a, a holy law. Now, all of a sudden, it's starting to make sense. They, they do need, they need saving grace. And the good news comes in. Um, so I was looking at... Uh, one of the catechisms. This is a Westminster one. It says, What are the sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? Well, the sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment are discontentment with our own estate, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. Somebody has something, we want that. Uh, being discontent with what we have, always wanting something else. We're not content and we're coveting because we have to have something to make us happy. Another question that they had on that was, is, is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? 
No man is able, either of himself or by any grace received in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but does daily break them in thought and word and deed. Of course, there's a theology that goes around that you can reach a perfection. That would go against that, wouldn't it? Another one is, are all transgressions of the law of God equally heinous in themselves and in the sight of God? Sin is sin. But also, it says, all transgressions of the law of God are not equally heinous, but some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. Are there more consequences to certain sins? Anyway, that's um, hitting on the fact that there is a law which means there's going to be a judgment day. When one breaks the law, they have to go to court. There's going to be a judgment here, and uh, this judge is perfect. Um, Just for a little bit of good news, just for the moment, just to put in here, Romans 5.20. But here for a breather. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. It means sins would be seen. Matter of fact, when people have a law, as a matter of fact, they want to break it even more, but it says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It's going to go exceedingly higher over the law. The law can't save, can it? Leaves us there. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace goes over and above the law. That's a... The law makes grace abound, doesn't it? You might remember um, John Bunyan that wrote a book about grace abounding. And it's just like when you're in darkness, and of course, I think Penny used this for a week or two ago, that it's so dark that there's not a bit of light in there whatsoever. And it makes the light shine. And see that glory. Okay, Judgment Day. Here's another quote from R.C. Sproul. He says, There's probably no, more, no concept in theology more repugnant to modern America than the idea of divine wrath. People don't talk about the wrath of God much because it can make people very uncomfortable. And we know there is certainty of Judgment Day. There is a Judgment Day. We must preach the coming of the Lord because it's the driving power of the Gospel. And it's what makes grace abound. But judgment is there. If you have a law, then judgment automatically has to be there. It's the power by which men uh, are aroused. Uh, when judgment is not preached, the Gospel is not preached. How do you need Gospel if you don't have judgment? Yeah. Why do you need good news if there's no law? No condemnation. And we can't dismiss the fact that God hates sin and transgressions and He punishes 
sinners. And He will do it with eternal torment. And we can't dismiss that. It's all throughout Scripture. It is here. How can we begin a Gospel presentation by telling people who are actually on their way to hell, they say they don't believe in God, or they don't, they're not a Christian, how can we begin this Gospel telling them that God has a wonderful plan for their lives? That's been the basic preaching during the time that I've been alive. That's usually what I've heard so much and some of the tracts that you'll get and such. But the plan that God has is that these sinners would repent and trust the Savior and receive the righteousness of Christ. And we don't know who those people are. God does, but we're to go out and give that news to everybody. We need to make sinners tremble. This is this sounds like we're trying to make them feel bad. And I guess actually, yeah. Right. They have to. They have to know. It's 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 hard to do that, you know, in our humanness, because you don't want you don't want to offend somebody. You know what? There's one part of us, and the flesh, you know, is going against the spirit. But that's you know, and you know, this law, it's, it's going to work the wrath. Look in Romans four. Yeah, how much do you really love them? Because if they don't know, and they're headed. Well, that's why the gospel is presented because it's reaching anybody. Yeah. 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 When you talk to people about this wonderful love of God and this mercy and grace, and and they realize that they have need, I know people that will quickly say, "Oh, I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine." I got my job, I got my family, I'm doing fine, I don't need all that religious stuff. They see no need. People see no need, and we're running around telling everybody, oh, God loves you. This is, yeah. (laughs) Until they find out that that what's coming, and they realize the need is all useless. That's right. Romans 4.15. And of course, here's, here's what it does right there, what you're saying. For the law brings about wrath. Where there is no law, there also is no violation. The law is here. <laughs> there is a violation. And it will bring about wrath. And it's certain. A lot of passages about the certainty of the wrath of God. Psalm 96. Eleven through thirteen. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Amen. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all this is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. This is great praise. But before the Lord, for He is coming... For He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. To Christians, we look forward to His return. And we praise Him. Let the heavens be glad, the earth rejoice, right? 
And we know that we are more than safe. And we look to the joy of that, that return, but also for Him coming back in wrath is another thought we have for those people that are lost, though. Uh, here, the psalm writer is making sure that He's coming to judge. Uh, we look in Acts chapter 17. Early days of the church. Paul's preaching to the people of Athens. And he says in 31, because... He's saying you, you must repent. Why? Because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. So He preaches that. He gave it to them. And as soon as they heard that, man, that was it. It's interesting, the resurrection of the dead is tied right in to this judgment. He's given proof to all men. He resurrected. That's the, the hinge point here of, uh, of our faith. 1 Corinthians 15 says we're most to be pitied if we don't have the resurrection of Christ. But we do. And because of that, we uh, say He's coming back. He will judge. Chapter 24, 25. 24, verse 25. It's still an X. And Paul is speaking to Felix and Drusilla. But as he was discussing righteousness, right? The rightness of God, self control, and the judgment to come. There he is speaking of God's righteousness, self control, the judgment to come. Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. <laughs> Go away. I can't hear anymore. I don't want to hear this. And uh, he's expecting money from Paul when he got the message of the truth that God is going to come back in judgment. Wow. This is before Felix. You would think in a, uh, a, a man of that stature that uh, he would have been quiet about that, right? But no. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. About 28. Therefore, since we receive the kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, and speaking of reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So, the certainty, the reality of hell, uh, you, you find in, in Luke 19, where you have that story that we're uh, familiar with so much. Passage. 19, 19.
This is the... Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll go ahead and read it. And he said to him, uh, and you are to be over five cities. That's about stewardship too. Another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank and having come, I would have collected it with interest? Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mino away from him. Give it to the one who has the ten minas. Well, that doesn't sound fair, does it? And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. See what they're saying? He already, they already have ten. You know, why give him more? I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here, slay them in my presence. Now that's a parable, but it's picturing a reality of how God will judge people who maybe thought they were even had something about the knowledge of Christ or saying they were good people. Maybe He gave them a little bit of truth of who He was and He takes that away. We're not talking that they're believers, but... It's a representation of somebody that must have uh, known something. In Matthew 25, this is like at the time of Christ's second coming and in verse 46. Look at the verbiage here. These will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. What kind of punishment? Eternal punishment. People will say, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe He died on the cross for my sins. Uh, and uh, I believe that He makes us righteous. But you know what? I can't believe that He would put people into hell forever. It's They're just going to burn up. Now, I've heard that from several people. Have you heard that from people? He wouldn't do that. That's not the kind of God that I have. And But it says here, eternal punishment. Not too much there they can really argue with. Um, let's go to Romans 2. Eight and nine. But to those who are selfishly ambitious, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. So as He judges as the perfect judge, He will uh, show no partiality no matter what uh, they thought they did. In Second um, Thessalonians, I'm not going to cover every verse here. There are plenty. And these are just a few. <laughs> it's not like we're covering the whole gamut. 
Second Thessalonians one nine. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified and His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. So, two different kinds of people there. Um, They have a penalty of eternal destruction. They go on and on and on. Without judgment, people really have no need to repent. So the judgment has to be brought forth. There is a judgment day. If they see a judgment, then they will recognize that there is repentance. What are we to be preaching? Repentance. What was John the Baptist saying whenever he came on the scene? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then Jesus comes on the scene. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Some insist, you know, repentance is rather old-fashioned. That goes back 102 years ago. We really shouldn't use that word because it really sounds bad. Sin is another one too, right? But they have to repent from their sin. There is a repentance unto life. That means they're dead, right? Scripture says it did spiritually. Uh, Acts eleven eighteen. Preaching the uh, gospel of grace. This is Peter. He says, when they heard this, about believing in Jesus Christ, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Now, people are commanded everywhere to repent. But yet, it's a gift from God. And that will set your mind whirling, won't it? But people are held responsible for uh, their belief, their repentance... Acts 20, verse 21. This is uh, Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders as he met them. And of course, he had taught the Gospel to them and going in from house to house, individuals and families. And he says, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance. You see it all throughout the Gospel as the Gospel is offered. Repentance. Jesus calls sinners to repentance. That's where we talked about repent for the kingdom of heaven is man. Look in Matthew 9.13. Of course He did. It's just a matter of where's that at? What's the Scriptures that I know He did but where, where are they at? Just good to be reminded. You have tax collectors and sinners, and uh, hey, there's the disciples there, Jesus there, and they're actually eating with sinners. Jesus is. Oh my! 
verses, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He calls sinners. That's everybody. But the ones who don't need a doctor or don't think they need a doctor. I'm okay, right? As Penny was saying. I'm just fine. Well, they're self-righteous. And everybody is that way, but God starts working in the heart, softening it, and He he comes and He saves sinners. That's what it's about. That's that's all of us, isn't it? And, And repentance is... It's a sorrow. But just not being sorry because you got caught or because... Uh, hey, I've I got to be sorry about this. I've got to repent because I don't want to go to hell. There's a sorrow according to the, the will of God. Second Corinthians. Pretty uh, straightforward. In chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. It says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of what? Repentance. Got to the point where they even wanted to repent. That means to turn the other way, doesn't it? To change your mind, to totally change your thinking, your life changes. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. They were sorrowful according to the will of God. Not just being sorry that they you know, didn't do something they were supposed to, but according to the will of God. It's repentance. Uh, look in Luke 13. On and on and on. Just about that. And this, you can't miss it. That's what all this is about. This Gospel. Luke 13.3 I tell you no, but unless you repent... You will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So there again, repent, 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 repent. And you can, uh, let's do an Old Testament. Let's do a Proverbs one. Just to see the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. Uh, twenty-eight thirteen. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. The one who hides him. The one that says he's not a sinner. The one that says he's okay. The one who says I'm just fine. And the sinner's there. Whether he knows it or not, he knows it. But he who confesses, there's the deal. And forsakes them. That's repentance. Confessing, forsaking them, leaving them behind, will find compassion or mercy. Tie in grace with that, right? So, we have the law. It demands repentance. It drives us to that point. The law can't do anything but condemn us right to hell. That's where the uh, the judgment day comes in. 
And that's where one would say, what must I do to be saved? Repent and be saved, right? Repent and believe. And that is really the, the heart of the message. That's where we always want to get people. Um, it's always good to be reminded of these things ourselves. We as Christians still uh, want to have a godly sorrow, uh, a repentance over our sins. And uh, you get that good news then where grace abounds. And that's what gospel really means. This is the this is the Sunabon, this is the dessert, this is where it's all headed of saying, Hey, now let me tell you about the love of God. Let me tell you about the grace of God, the mercy of God. Then those words now start meaning something. And then we can give them that wonderful balm and Gilead, right? That beautiful story of grace. And show that yeah, you uh, you're stuck there. But Christ is the one who brings you out of there, and uh, that you know that takes us back to our own lives. And every one of us came from different backgrounds and different uh, situations, but we're all in common. <laughs> we we were lost, and we didn't we didn't know anything wrong. We thought we were okay, just doing fine. Were most of you guys doing pretty fine? Doing pretty good. I think of Janice. You were just cruising right along. You didn't need any of that stuff, did you? <laughs> Anybody have any kind of thing they want to share on whenever the, the gospel really hits you? And you know what? Sometimes God softens us so much that He gets us ready that we already know that we have broken His law, that we're sinners. The, the ground had been plowed and uh, the next thing you know is that He has converted you that was by that wonderful grace. But uh, you guys are pretty quiet after talking about hell and judgment day and the wrath of God and sin and death and punishment. <laughs> but we rejoice though because we, we know the truth. And so... The best way we can show love is to tell somebody there's a tiger outside, and if you open that door, you know, if we don't warn them, we just let them go on out there, then they're going to get ate up, right? Eaten up. So we do, we do have, we do have truth.